All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Did you ever have one of those weeks, I think I did last week, where um, you just get to the end of the week and you need to hear something that's positive, something that is encouraging? Uh, maybe you're worn out from the stress of life or uh, somebody has been maybe harsh to you and you're just kind of discouraged. They said something that set you off or that, that really hurt you emotionally. Uh, or, or maybe you've uh, and saying, man, think well. Now, that gets compounded, that, that need for encouragement, when we're in spiritual warfare. And we know, we know that from experience, too. But, but sometimes the spiritual warfare really gets ramped up. We felt it certainly over the last three weeks uh, as we've prepared for VBS. Uh, Julie has been working so hard and so many hours um, getting ready for that and getting her team together. And, and we've really just, I'm not saying this out of self-pity, I'm just saying this out of, out of openness, uh, we've really been hit and really been um, just under great attack. And many of you have too. I'm not saying we're the only ones, but, but it's hard because you know truth and you know the Lord and you know it's coming and you know why it's coming. But sometimes when spiritual warfare is very heavy like that, you feel beaten up and, and you just feel worn down and you lay down at bed at night. You're like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get up in the morning. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow because I feel completely weary. And that's the times when we need Scripture so much. That's the time we need the Holy Spirit so much. Because we not only need hope, we not only need to be able to get up the next morning and say, all right, Lord, fresh day, new mercies from you that are ready for me and I'm ready to serve. But, but even more than just hope, we need strength. And we need confidence and we need power that's available from the Lord. Well, if that's you, if I just described you and I'm not asking a a show of hands, but I'm guessing it's more than myself. If that's you this morning, this passage is perfect for you. In fact, this passage is perfect for anybody. If you're a believer for a long time, or you're new to the faith, or you've been saved, but you're just not doing well in your walk, you're kind of struggling, or you're, or you're not walking by faith, or maybe you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ at all. You just, you wandered in this morning, or a friend invited you, a family member invited you, you don't, you don't know Jesus, you don't want to sing to Jesus because you don't have a relationship with him, that's fine. But I want to tell you this morning that there is triumph in Christ. That there is victory in Christ. And as I've, I, I planned on preaching something different this morning, and as I, I started to study and started to get into this passage, I got so encouraged because this passage talks about the victory that Christ has already won. The victory that Christ has already won and the victory that He continues to work out in our lives every single day. Now that's important, and we need to tell ourselves that. We need to speak to our spirit a little bit every single day because there's this battle that's going on, and the battle is intensifying, and, and it's fought on a lot of different levels. The first way it's fought is spiritual warfare. We're always under spiritual warfare. Saved or unsaved, there's always a battle. It's persistent. And, and as we grow and mature in the Lord, as we get deeper into our faith, as we, as we become adults spiritually, that battle gets worse. doesn't get better. The stronger you are in the Lord doesn't mean that the devil shies away. The stronger you are in the Lord, the harder the devil works. Because he knows he can't have your soul, but he wants to drag you away from the Lord as much as he possibly can. And he wants you, as a strong, maturing believer, 
to not find confidence in the Lord and not find trust in the Lord because he knows that if he can weaken a strong believer, then those that are weaker or younger in the faith or those that are watching us that aren't saved are going to get disheartened because somebody who's mature and strong is failing. So the battle will intensify. That's not a negative. That's just evidence that that God is working in our lives. And we really are never exempt from it. The enemy utilizes many different methods and many different tactics to confuse us. Sometimes he wants us to believe we're immune from it, uh, so we'll get complacent. And other times he, he wants to kind of attack hard, hoping that the weakness is there and that we'll yield to it and that our faith will struggle. And then we'll start to say, well, maybe I don't want to trust the Lord. Maybe I don't want to serve the Lord. Maybe, maybe I just want to get emotionally extreme because the devil loves to work with emotional extremism. That becomes very dangerous to us. So we've got spiritual warfare. Then the second line of attack is the manipulation of our emotions. Emotions, how many know emotions are unreliable? How many knows emotions are subjective? You can't trust them, right? How I feel right now, how I felt when I woke up after not enough sleep and looked at my watch and said, oh, snap, it's Sunday. You ever know those mornings where you're like, I have no idea what day of the week it is. You look at your watch, you go, oh, Sunday, yeah, I have a job today. I got to go to church and work. Other days you wake up and you're like, rats, it's Monday. I got to go back to my job. Or yay, it's Friday. Now, when we have those times where we are emotionally uh, just kind of vulnerable, where, where our emotions aren't reliable, which is all the time, and, and emotions can get twisted and they can get controlled, and it's up to us to recognize that they're undependable. Instead of looking at our emotions and saying, well, I'm really frustrated, or I'm angry, or I'm tired, or I'm ticked off, or, or I, I'm wrung out, or I'm depressed, or whatever the case may be, we have to yield that to the Spirit, and we have to say, Holy Spirit of God, You are the one that gives me a renewed mind. You're the one that changes the way I think to be in line and conformity with Christ. So instead of relying on my emotions, I've got to rely on you. But there's always going to be a battle of our emotions. The third line of attack is going to be a direct attack on our spiritual strength and resolve. God is constantly testing our spiritual strength and resolve, and the enemy is constantly testing our spiritual strength and resolve. There's a two-pronged attack. The devil wants to see how much he can weaken us, and God wants to see how much he can strengthen us. So the devil's going to try to hit you and me to see if we'll fall apart, to see if we're living by the filling of the Spirit, to see if we're eating the meat of the Word, to see if we're resting in the fortress of prayer, to, to see if we, are, if we are being edified by the body, or whether we'll collapse. And at the same time the devil's doing that, the Lord is doing that because he's trying and testing our faith to see how strong and resilient it is and to prove that we are strong in him. So our resolve is constantly being pushed. That's why when you read through the epistles, after you get past Romans, you get to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, and into John and Peter, backwards order, sorry about that, 
when you look through that and you study the New Testament, notice how many times we're told to stand strong, to stand firm, to put on the armor of God, to put off the old man and put on the new, to let go of youthful lust, to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. See, all of those verses are related to our resolve. Stand firm in the Lord. In other words, the sands of culture are shifting and trials are hitting us and temptations attacking us and warfare is all around us and we can be like the house that's built on sand that Jesus talked about that when the rains of, of trouble came, washed away, or we can be the house that's built on a rock. Stand firm in the Lord. Now it's interesting that we're talking about this because when you look at 2 Corinthians, we know from past study that the Corinthians were not the most faithful disciples in the world. They were the church that probably struggled the most because they lived for themselves and they craved the world more than they hungered for righteousness. And, and that's not what we're called to. People that love the Lord, people that have been saved, are, are equipped to live in a stronger way. And when we live for ourselves and we live for the world, that, that's a, a really an offense to what Christ has done. And it has two very dangerous qualities. It has the quality of ingratitude and the equality of love of self. I think one of the saddest verses in the Bible is in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is a chapter, if you read it, and I want to encourage you, read that this week. Read Romans 1. Study it for a couple days. Don't just, well, I read it on Monday. A pastor told me to do that, and I'm done. Now, take apart Romans 1 this week. Study it. Uh, look at the words that are being used. Look at the phrases that are being used. Look at Paul's thesis. What's he saying? You've, some of you have taken the Bible study methods class. I'm hoping we're going to offer that again this fall. Take the, take the text apart. Romans 1 is so relevant for 2015. It describes what we're seeing every day in the news. And Paul is describing the consequences when people deny God and they reject Christ, even though the truth's evident to them. I think what has, what has bothered me the most, I mean, it bothers me on so many levels, but what disturbs me right now when I watch a leader of Planned Parenthood casually talk about killing babies in such a way that they can mine their body parts for money, or, or when, I, when I see the deliberate action uh, of altering the law and the Constitution to fit political agendas, or I see people who, who want to be president uh, purposely lie and obfuscate the truth and get applauded for it. When I see all that, I see Romans 1. Because the rejection of God and the truth is now without any shame. It's now brazen. It's, it's now right out in the open. There's not any more hesitation like, well, what will happen if we say this? Now, now it's being pushed so heavily that when you study Romans 1 this week, you're going to say to yourself, this chapter that was written 2,000 years ago is being fulfilled right in front of my eyes. And Paul tells us the reason. We won't turn, but just listen to the text and you can look at it. Romans 1.21. It says, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Instead, they became futile in the speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. In other words, they didn't honor God, 
that they didn't thank God. The first two traits of spiritual rebellion are refusing to honor God's holiness and God's greatness and God's authority. And the second one is to not be thankful about it. Now, the first one seems obvious. The second one seems almost a little too simplistic. And let you look all throughout Scripture. That theme is echoed. People who knew the Lord but didn't want to thank Him for His grace. Pharaoh, the Israelites, Absalom, Jeroboam, we studied last week, Nebuchadnezzar, the Pharisees, Diotrephes, Alexander the coppersmith, on and on and on. People who knew the truth, who, who apparently had, had, had exposure to the truth, understood what was expected, and yet were so callous and so unappreciative that they turned away from God. That really is the Corinthian church. And when there's ingratitude, there's love of self. And when there's love of self, there's ingratitude. The two work together. That's why if you look at chapter 2, I know we haven't read yet, look at verse 8. Paul says, Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for Christ. In other words, Corinthians, you once knew, and this is letter 3, we believe, 1 Corinthians, we know, is Paul's indictment of their selfishness and their pride. 2 Corinthians, which is not the one you're holding, there apparently was a letter in between. So this really is probably 3 Corinthians. And in 3 Corinthians, by this time, they know exactly what Paul's taught, what Paul's expected. He sent people there to, to communicate the message. He's been utterly clear. There's been no equivocation anything he's written. So he writes them the third time, and he says, look, you guys got to get your act together. You guys have to reaffirm your love for Christ because you've become complacent and you become worldly. And those two things work together in tandem. And your love is waned. You're, you're like a person who's lost their affection for their spouse. And they've become uh, callous toward the spouse. And they've started to just assume that they can coexist, but there doesn't need to be any love. That's, Corinthians, how you've become. And Paul says you've got to reaffirm your love for Christ. Get your mind off yourself. Quit thinking about yourself and live for Christ. Now why is he so uh, firm about that? And why am I so worked up about it this morning? Well, the bottom line is what we're going to read in just a moment. And that's the fact that when there is no uh, love for Christ, when we're thinking about ourselves, there's no victory. So many people have had exposure to the truth and come to church I'm not talking necessarily here. They go to church and they study the Bible and they pray a little bit and they sing if they're comfortable with the song and they can read the words and the atmosphere is right, but there's absolutely zero victory in their life. Why? Because sin is a great liar. Because the devil's a great liar. Sin says there's going to be happiness and fulfillment but it always falls short. It never delivers. See, sin promises freedom and lack of restraint. It says you can have anything you want. You can do anything you want. You'll be fulfilled as you've ever wanted to be if you will just live for yourself. And it's a great lie because what sin actually does is put us in greater bondage and strip us of freedom. Think about the time in your life 
where you have been farthest away from the Lord. Think about the time in your life where you have been most in sin. If you are honest with yourself, you will realize that during that time, there was no joy and there was no contentment. It's all stripped away. It's a false sense of freedom that we're told will come to fruition and never does. I was thinking uh, yesterday about the prodigal son who has a bunch of friends when the cash is flowing, right? When, when he's got his wallet out and he's like, yeah, I'll pay for that. Yeah, you want a meal? I'll pay for that. Yeah, let's go out to this club. I'll pay for that. That'll be good. And everybody's like, man, we love you, prodigal son. Pretty sure that wasn't his name, but we'll go with it, right? We love you, prodigal son, man. You are so awesome. Thank you. You know, people don't really say thank you, but thank you for, for paying for this. Yeah, where are we going next? What are we doing next? Where, what are we going to eat next? Prodigal's like, man, I got all kinds of money. It'll be great. And then his wallet starts to get lighter and lighter, and the people start to mooch off him more and more. And then he, he's not so cute to the girls anymore, and he's not the life of the party anymore, and all, all the homies don't want to hang out with him anymore because they realize that the money's running dry. And they're not true friends, they're fake friends. And once the money runs out, they don't want to hang out with them anymore because they're living for themselves too, and he's just financing it. So when he's not useful anymore, they leave him. And then he's left literally standing in a pigsty feeding pigs, which were the most unclean animals to Jews. And he stands there alone, having alienated his father, having alienated his family, having lost all these fake friends that he had, saying to himself, what am I doing here? Sin promised me that I was going to be happy and fulfilled, and yet I'm standing here in a pigsty, and I'm taking the food from the pigs because I'm so hungry because I don't have any more money. Sin always promises, but never delivers. Now, let's get to the good stuff, because you've listened well so far, and i got to bring this around. That's not how we have to live. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to not only be forgiven and redeemed and changed. Now, here's the good part. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has provided for us to live in victory. To live in victory. And that's what these four verses, 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17, are teaching us. And the truth here is so rich and so awesome. I'm not going to do it justice, so Holy Spirit help us this morning. These verses should stir us and stir spoke our passion for the Lord and should fill us with hope and fill us with confidence and fill us with strength for this week and all the things that need to be done and all the opposition we're going to face and all the warfare we're going to face. Listen, we don't have to be worn down. We have a victorious life. We have a victorious life. Let's read about it. It's right here, verses 14 to 17. We're going to take a few minutes... Sorry, we're going to take a few minutes on each one, and I want to really encourage you, take some notes now. Don't just sit and listen. I know it's warm in here, and it's easy to kind of get lulled to sleep, but, but we need the Spirit to teach us this this week. And by Tuesday, you're going to need to read these over again. And if you just listen, research has shown that you'll forget. You retain 10% of what you hear alone three days later. If you write it down and then live it, you'll retain 80%. So that's why we encourage you to take notes. And you're going to get to Wednesday and you're going to say, my week stinks. 
What were those things that Rhodes talked about again? What were those, what were those qualities? And what was the text? Where's my bulletin? Honey, where's my bulletin? What was the text? Was it Corinthians somewhere? Or was it Romans? I can't remember. How many know I'm telling truth right now? So write them down. I, I, I studied this even late into the night last night. I woke up this morning and I said to myself, I need those qualities today. I need victorious life today. I mean, it was just a matter of hours between the time I closed my Bible and woke up. But I realized how much I needed it today, okay? So these are the qualities of a victorious life. And we'll just take uh, a couple minutes, not even a couple minutes on some of them, uh, on each of them, and then we'll say good morning. Having trouble with my, my platform up here this morning. All right, 2 Corinthians 2, you there? That was the longest introduction I've ever had in 28 years of preaching. You're like, no, I've heard longer. All right, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God, who always, notice the wording, always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, and to the other, aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity and as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, these are great words that Paul's writing, and I want to spend, as I said, just a couple minutes on each one, and I want you to write at the top of the page, a victorious life. A victorious life. And we're going to look at the qualities of that because they're very important. The first qualities in verse 14, a victorious life is only found in Christ. A victorious life is only found in Christ. You're like, well, that's basic theology 101. It's amazing how many Christians don't live that way. A victorious life is only found in Christ. He says in verse 13, thanks be to God. Remember, notice how important praise and thanksgiving is because it gives you the right perspective. He says, thanks be to God because He always leads us to triumph in Christ. Now, if you write in your Bible, underline the word always. If you don't, then write it in your notes because that's the word that should stand out. There's no equivocation. There's no uncertainty. There's no doubt. There's no question. It's not sometimes. It's not most times. It's not occasionally. It is always leads us to triumph in Christ. There's never a failure on God's part. Every time He will come through. So look at the truth and the promise that He makes. When you love the Lord, when you're walking with Him, He will always lead you to victory in Christ. It will probably not be our way of doing it. It will probably not be our timing. It will probably not be our end result. But if we trust Him, He will give us victory. But notice the qualification. It's that little two-word preposition, the word in. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means, we've heard this before, hear it again. It means to die to self daily. It means to yield completely to His will in full faith and in full confidence. It means to have the mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, humble and selfless and loving and empty of Himself. When we live that way, when we think that way, He promises us victory will be ours. 
Now, how do we learn that? Go to verse 14 again. We learn it through the Word because a victorious life, second, clearly evidences the wisdom of God. It says Christ manifests, the word there in the Greek means to be visible, so Christ is visible through us in the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him. Now that's an interesting thought. Because what Paul is teaching here is that the presence of Christ should be so obvious in us because we're in Christ, first qualification. When we're in Christ, the presence of Christ should be so obvious in us that it's actually visible to other people. That it's noticeable. That, that people say, wait a second, what's going on with you? Wait a second, you are different. Wait a, why do you react to difficulty that way? Wait a, why do you pray? Why do you keep going to that church? Why do you build a volcano? Why do you go 9 to 12 in the morning and, and minister to kids without any air conditioning? Why do you do that? What's going on? What's, what's the difference in you? You know, I don't, I don't approach life the same way you do. Now, you've heard that before. That almost sounds trite because we've said it so many times. But that's what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He says Christ should be manifest in us. He should be visible through us. It should be patently obvious. His ownership should be so intense that anyone who is around us should say, there is something going on, and you better tell me about it right now. Because I want to be like that. You're calm. You have peace. You're, you're, you're holy, you're different. You, you don't live the way other people live. Why are you so confident? What, what's the deal? Why do you trust God? I want to know something about this. See, our lives should be so evident that people ask us. That's what he's saying here. That's the victorious life. And that proves that we have wisdom. Then look at the third thing. I love this one. I think this is my favorite thought of the morning. A victorious life has the scent of Christ. It has the scent of Christ. For we are a fragrance, verse 15, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I remember I heard a pastor say once, it stuck with me for the last probably 15 years. He said, God hates pride because it has the scent of hell. And I thought as I studied this passage, turn that around. God loves it when we trust Christ and surrenders our, surrender ourselves to Him because that smells like Jesus. That smells like Jesus. It's a sweet fragrance of forgiveness and redemption. It's the aroma of grace and mercy being poured out. And, and we can't fathom it, but try to think how much joy... And how much satisfaction the Lord gets when someone puts their faith in Christ for the very first time. The Bible says that when somebody gets saved, that all of heaven rejoices. And you know what? This week in this building, I want heaven to yell a bunch of times. I want a bunch of kids from this neighborhood that don't know Christ to walk in this building and say, what's the deal? Why you got a volcano? Why you got a tiki hut? Why you got animals all over the place? What's the deal? And then for the next five days, we're going to tell them about the love of Jesus Christ, and they're going to commit their lives to Christ, and heaven's going to shout. There, he's, there, there should be the scent of Christ. 
How much joy does Christ get when he sees someone stop running and living for themselves and to repent and say, you know what, I'm wrong. That's taking me in the wrong direction. And and, and I've been selfish and I've been proud and my heart's got to change. And Christ says, that's why I went to the cross. That's why for the joy that was set before me, I endured the suffering and shame. So you would turn around. You see, 1 Peter says we're partakers of the divine nature. We, we don't just get saved. Okay, I went forward. I got saved. I'm good now. I got my fire insurance. I'm going to heaven. I'll kind of play the string out until Christ comes back or I die, and then I'll go to heaven, and, and I'll see Aunt Susie and, and my dog and, and Grandpa Jim. And No, come on, guys. That's not why Christ died. That's not why Christ died. We are partakers. Listen, this is the most awesome truth. We are partakers of the divine nature. And because we're partakers of the divine nature, we have the smell of Christ. You ever been away from somebody that you love and, and, you, and you come across a, a piece of clothing or you smell something that has their cologne or their perfume and, and it takes you back? I guarantee you that if you put some original Old Spice, remember original Old Spice in the bottle? That stuff's awesome. It's like, it says 75 years old. But if you put some Old Spice on the platform this morning and I smelled that, I would be instantly transported back about 35 years to my grandparents' house in Florida because it smells like my grandfather. That scent, that aroma, it takes me back. That's what we're supposed to have. The fragrance of victory When people come near us, they should look at us and go, something weird about you. (laughs) Man, what is is your deal? Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about my relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how I once was lost and now I'm found. Let me tell you how Christ has transformed my life. Number four, verse 15. A victorious life impacts both the saved and the unsaved. Our lives should have significant spiritual influence. If you're taking notes, write those words in capitals. Significant spiritual influence. Every day, we should have significant spiritual influence on somebody. Kids, spouse, friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members, strange people, Homeless people, lost people, people at the mall. We should have significant spiritual influence. Now, that takes on a lot of different forms. That's not just going to door to door and witnessing. That, that's building a volcano. That's sitting on the floor teaching a kid about Christ. That's being a prayer warrior. That, that's showing somebody God's love. That's handing somebody some food that doesn't have any. That, that's teaching, uh, 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 praying with a brother or sister who's hurting and crying. That, that's uh, telling a coworker about trusting in Christ and having the boldness to share what's happened in your own life. The, the bottom line is, what kind of influence are we having on the saved and on the unsaved. For our brothers and sisters, we need to be building each other up. We need to be strengthening each other. Where where we're discouraged, we need to say, no, listen, there's victory in Christ. 
where, where they're hurting, we need to say, let me come alongside you, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to call you on Tuesday and find out how you're doing, and I want you to be open with me because I love you and I care for you. Your, your faith is struggling. Let me tell you about my experience with that. Not to talk about myself, but to talk about the goodness of God. Influence on brothers and sisters, strengthening, pushing one another, spurring one another on in our faith. And then for those that aren't saved, we're supposed to minister to them to show them the love of Christ and to show them the gospel. And you know what? They may hate us for it. Jesus said, they're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to revile you. Why? Because they hate me and they persecute me and they revile me. So if you have my scent on you, guess what? They're going to hate your guts. But they also may be drawn to me because they see a difference in you. Listen, the world is getting tougher and people are increasingly pushing against. And we're going to be offense to some and we got to get comfortable with that because the gospel is an offense to some. And we're going to be criticized by some because they hate Christ and that's okay. I'd rather be criticized because I love Christ too much than be criticized because I didn't love him enough. But there are also going to be people that look at our lives and they're going to say, you know what, there's a power and there's a sufficiency and there's a faith there that I cannot understand, but I want to know more about it and I need you to tell me about it. A victorious life impacts the saved and the unsaved. Fifth, let me go quickly. A victorious life holds to the Word of God. Look at verse 17. We're not like many peddling the Word of God. If you look over chapter 4, verse 2, he talks about people who walk in craftiness and who adulterate the Word of God. See, both of these verses, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 2, they're both very relevant today because even within Christianity, the Bible's kind of become subjective. And the Bible has been de-emphasized and marginalized and softened and manipulated and, and created only what's going to deal with our felt needs. We wouldn't dare teach Deuteronomy. We always have to deal with something that's going to make us feel good and take us out of the church feeling positive so we can walk out and saying, boy, that was great. I'm so glad I'm a Christian. And look at all the things God's going to do for me. And look at all the things that I get. I don't have to give a lot. I don't know. I'm just going to get from God. And we've done that because we don't take the word at face value anymore. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul got accused of the very same thing. Turn over just a couple pages to Galatians 1 just for a minute. This is the passage I started with this week that I thought I was going to preach. I just want to mention it now. Turn over to Galatians 1.10 just for a minute. Let me give you a really 20-second summary. The big debate in Galatia was that the Judaizers, these are Jews that have trusted Christ, the Judaizers were still saying to the Gentiles, you have to obey the law, including circumcision. That, that you're saved, okay, we know you trust Christ, we trust Christ too, but in order for you really to be saved, you then have to now fulfill all the elements of the law. And we're going to start with circumcision because that's a sign of the old covenant, uh, which they just called the covenant. And, and we now are going to demand that, yes, you trust in Christ and good, and let's all praise and worship God together, but you also have to obey the law. Now, Paul challenged this. And the whole book of Galatians is about freedom in Christ and how Christ has fulfilled the law and how there is a new covenant that he has established. Now, when Paul taught this, 
Of course, we know in church everything's always unified, right? So the Judaizers put Paul's up on their shoulders and they said, Yay, Paul, you changed our minds. You taught us something different. This is wonderful. uh, Gentiles, we are so sorry that we did that. We were wrong. How many think that happened? As soon as Paul came in and taught the gospel and said, no, no, Jews, we're not under the law anymore. Listen, I was a Pharisee. I know this. We're not under the law anymore. We are under grace. And now God has established a new covenant, and Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant, so now we live in grace. We don't have to be circumcised and fulfill every letter of the law, because we can't. That's the whole reason Jesus came. And the next thing they did is say, you're perverting the truth. Paul, you are dumbing down the Scripture. They're accusing him now, Paul. You're dumbing down the Scripture and you're not teaching the whole counsel of God. And and they wanted basically to run him out of town. Now, if you can say one thing about Paul, he didn't mince words. And he didn't back down from anybody. And he certainly didn't try to just pacify people, including his critics at the expense of the gospel. So this is a ridiculous charge. But look at what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I'm still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. In other words, Paul says, look, Why do you think I'm doing this? If my goal is just to make everybody happy and to teach things that are just going to pacify everybody and satisfy everybody and everybody can walk out the door feeling great, then why did I take this role? Why am I a bondservant? Because you remember, we've studied bondservant many times. A bondservant is a servant who willingly submits themselves to the master for life because they love them. Paul says, look, I could be a Pharisee. I could please people. I could be condemning people. I I could do whatever I want. I was the highest echelon. Nobody was more uh, lofty in terms of position, Philippians 3, than I was. Why would I take this role of being a bondservant and traveling around and being arrested and being stoned and being criticized and being distrusted and, and, and living from day to day, not knowing where the next meal was coming from? Why would I go to the Gentiles of all people if I was not teaching the truth? So he says, look, I'm not trying to please you. I'm trying to please the Lord. And what a great question for us. Let's bring this to a close. What, what a great question for us. Are you living to please Christ or are you living to please other people? Including yourself. I mean, every day, are we living to please Christ? Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our Master. Are we living to please Him or are we living to please other people? Bible says, no man can serve two masters. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So we have to choose. Am I living for Christ or living for myself? Am I living for Christ or am I living for somebody else? Am I living by the word or am I living by the world? Is Christ preeminent or do I want to have some of my own rights and some of my own life and do my own thing and I'll give Christ some time over here but the rest of the time is mine? Is it For me to live as Christ, or to me to live as, I don't know, I'll see what tomorrow holds. A victorious life 
holds to the Word of God. Finally, a victorious life consistently abides in the presence of God. In His presence is all the power and joy that we need, and apart Him, apart from Him, we can do nothing. In His presence is fullness of joy. In His presence is strength and sufficiency. In His presence is power. And when we face difficulty, God will provide. When there's temptation, He will give us strength to be an overcomer, as we studied last week. And we will be more than conquerors. And He will give us the way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10.13. And we can walk out of it. When we're in trials, we have the power of God to strengthen us and shape us. And those trials are actually for our good because they're there to mature us even more in our faith. When opposition comes, we can be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. We can put on the full armor of God. And actually, we can turn around that opposition. And like Acts 4 says, we can now become bold in our witness and talk about the sufficiency of God and show the love of Christ and the power of the gospel. So what's the bottom line? Let's get to, let's get to the, the application here. Second Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 2. Am I, insert your name here, Am I living in the victory that's described there? When I look at my list that I just wrote down, or I think about what we just talked about from the passage, do I see myself, or does that look kind of foreign? Is it a nice concept, but, but I'm not there? Are those, are those goals but not realities? And if they are, then what's holding you back? What needs to be changed? See, Christ frees us from bondage, but we have to surrender to Him. Without Christ, we're all conquered by sin. We're all under bondage. Christ puts sin to death. He conquers that. All the victory is His. And at that point, He can keep us captives. He can say, look how powerful I am. Look how strong I am. I defeated sin and death, and now you're mine, and I own you, and you're my slaves, and you're going to do whatever I say I want because I bought you, and I own you. Does anybody think that Jesus works that way? What's he say? Look at the text one more time. We're going to pray. He says, the shackles, I'm taking them off. I'm setting you free. Now, don't use freedom as license to go back to sin. Don't, don't think now that just because I freed you and you got your, your get-out-of-jail pass, now that you can go back and do the things you did in jail. No, it doesn't work that way. I freed you so you can live in victory. And when you live for me, victory will be confident, uh, constant. Why would we ever go back in chains when we can be part of the victory march? Why would we ever go back in the cell and slam the door and say, I would rather be in bondage than be in victory? That's what the devil wants you and me to do this week, and we're going to say no, because we have victory in Christ.